0: Love the Nouns,
1: Love the Pronouns, Impersonal and Personal. Love the Words, from
2: ELFM.
1: You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. First of all, episode two of In Our Element, presented by the poet Linda France, a poet's response to climate change uh, in association with uh, New Writing North and Newcastle University. It's a Sonderbug production. After that, we'll be hearing an interview with Emma Diane Wright who is the director of the Emma Press, talking about how she set up the press and the exciting things that they're up to. I do apologise for the audio quality, particularly of my voice. It, it sounds like I'm in Latvia and she's and she's here in Leeds. It's actually the other way round. I don't know what happened, but I hope you can make it out.
0: In Our Element A poet's inquiry into climate change Episode 2. Earth. Recently I came across a traditional saying from Serbia. Be humble, for you are made of dung. Be noble, for you are made of stars. I love that balance and paradox, the way it holds contradictory things to be true at the same time. Earthling, may you seek out dirt, may you never go unsoiled, relish the reek of manure, may your dry places be blessed with rain, may whatever you plant grow. Let your life be compost, feeding the earth as she feeds you. Know yourself kin. May you bend to her laws, not try to make her bow to yours. Raise your beds, garden your forests, take care with fire. And when the time comes, may you settle softly as dust. Aren't we all earthlings. There's no doubting that we depend on the earth element for the food we need to stay alive. Environmental activist Vanzana Shiva tells us we have sacrificed better quality in the food we grow and eat for supposedly higher yields that meanwhile demand more and more water to compensate for soil erosion and compaction, which in turn leads to floods and plant and human diseases. Using artificial, often toxic chemicals to enrich soils and kill insects, rather than working with the Earth's natural ability to balance itself with the helpful intercessions of insect life. We're going to compost
3: here now. Old roads lead to the compost. (laughs) So we've got some different bins going on here. Um, So I I call this our soil-assisted compost bins.
0: Soil scientists have discovered over 50,000 different soil types across the world. According to gardener Monty Don, the soil is as complicated as the human body and should be treated with the same respect a point made 4,000 years ago in the Sanskrit sacred scriptures, the Vedas, where it says, In this handful of soil is your future. Take care of it, and it will take care of you. Destroy it, and it will destroy
3: you. You're feeding the organisms in the soil, you're feeding the living soil. And you get worms, beetles, and the fungi's there, the bacteria's there. All your other organisms build on that. The the war in the soil, you know, it's life and death. It really is. And the end result is humus, the dead bodies of all the creatures, all the insects, and all their poo. Do I am allowed to say poo?
0: (laughs) The word humus, essentially decomposed organic matter, comes from the same root as human And humility, and forgetting to take proper care of something so fundamental as the earth itself, the source of all the food that makes and maintains our own physical bodies, have we forgotten our humanity? And also the humility that arises from knowing we are only a small part of a complex web of natural processes accounting for nearly a third of our global carbon emissions, food and farming is the top priority in addressing the issue of climate change and managing a just transition to a more sustainable future.
3: I'm Andrew Davenport. We run a plant nursery and a garden, which we open to the public. It's run on sustainable and organic principles. The other side of my business is composting. I wrote a book about quick return composting. We're getting into late June and the garden probably is getting into its real stride now. Everywhere you go, you'll see a mulch. You won't see any bare soil in this garden and that's hugely important. Mm -mm. (laughs) Normally I would get the garden mulched by the end of March because your mulches suppress the germination of of the seeds. So your weeding is eliminated. And then you're in the moisture into the soil with a mulch and then you've got the benefit to your plants. Your plants love it because they're growing in a healthy living soil and that soil's being fed. And the organisms that are attracted to the root zones of plants because plants release these things called exudates, like secretions, and nearly all plants do it. Some have very significant effects... The secretions from common valerian they seem to attract worms around their root zone. And worms will cycle nutrients. Worm poo is very, very good. They increase the amount of minerals available to plants in good percentages. But mainly bacteria and fungi, they're going to do the work around the root zones as well because bacteria and fungi will be breaking down the organic matter that you're putting back to the soil. They initially tie it up inside themselves... But then something has to come along and and eat them and release the nutrients. And they make a lot of nitrogen available for plants. So when you do all this mulching and adding compost or manure, you're feeding the organisms. You're not feeding the plants, feed the organisms, the living soil.
0: The soil, indeed Andrew's whole garden here in Northumberland, is very much buzzing with life. You can't help but feel more connected to the everyday miracle that's happening all around you. Deborah McGregor is an associate professor at York University in Canada and works in environmental justice. She is also Anishinaabe and Whitefish River First Nation and has a profound connection with the living earth rooted in her Anishinabe concept of creation.
4: In the story... Literally, people came from the land itself. That's literally where we come from. And the process is ongoing. When you think of creation, it sounds like a noun, but it's actually really a verb. It's this constant unfolding process of the earth living its life and doing what it needs to do to support other life. And therefore, you're always responsive to that, paying attention, seeing what's going on, being able to listen, and probably not just listening. You're kind of listening with your whole body. It's not just listening like with your ears and hearing the sounds that are coming. It's like listening with the whole body and then sitting with it. It's a relationship or reciprocity, so we influence one another. For the Anishinaabek, other people have other concepts. For us, that's bodzawin, having a good life. The art of living well, and not just live well for humanity. What do we need to do so humanity can survive? But we also need to think about what, what does that look like in relation to the earth? It means like directly connecting with the natural world and that concept is informed by the natural world itself. And I think that's partly where the hope is, like start using our imagination, start imagining what it's like to be different in the world and what that relationship is with the earth.
0: Our lives are full of distractions, so we can't see what's in front of our noses or what's in the deepest parts of ourselves talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jory Graham in America, I asked her how she saw the climate crisis.
5: I would say it's a crisis of imagination, but the word imagination is not often used in its more expansive and profound sense. We think of it as meaning the invented or the imaginary, but the imagination... As Coleridge would say, is something which brings the whole soul of man or woman into activity. It is not just an awakening of body and mind at the same time, but we have intuition. We have an ability to, if we wanted to, feel the living nature of all the rest of creation around us, which from the microscopic to the large animal and plant life dwarfs human life on this planet. And if we were to awaken that sense in us, which can feel the alongsideness of that much life, to feel, intuit, see and imagine that we can enter into conscious relation with, or some kind of relation with the non-human, which involves visualization, it involves um, apprehension, it involves even a kind of terror at being small in relation to the rest of what is living around us. We might be afraid of killing
4: it all. There needs to be a dramatic change, a dramatic transformation. What makes sort of indigenous climate studies or thinking a bit different is that indigenous peoples have had to face our annihilation and continued annihilation before, but here we are. But what it means is that Indigenous peoples, and Anishnabek peoples, have figured out how to survive through that, and our stories are instructive. What do we need to do to avoid destruction that we know is coming? And they tell us what we need to do. Usually ego is a big part of it, greed, like those kind of things don't serve processes of creation and recreation very well. Usually it's trying to get people to reconnect back to the earth itself. That's usually what it is. Like, it's like, this is how you need to behave properly in relation to the earth. You need to be able to get that connection back. It's usually because there's a loss of connection that people do this. They're not listening anymore. They're abusing plants and animals. They're not following guidance that helps you, like, regenerate and recreate the earth itself. Our stories speak to that. So I I think about some of the stories and I go, that's kind of what's happening now. But the question is whether people are cluing in to what's happening and that change and transformation is actually required in order to continue this reciprocal, unfolding, co-creative process with the earth.
3: I was given a book by my father-in-law called A Symposium of Organic Husbandry, written in 1948, I think. He said oh, I've just got this little gardening book for you, you know. <laughs> and, and then I read it and, and there was all these good things about, you know, the founder members of the Soil Association because it had only been set up a couple of years by then. The same problems existed then or they could foresee what was going on, what was going to happen with the climate. They knew, you knew what was going on with the soil and the degradation of the soils. And that had gone back in the 1920s in the dust bowls of America, the degradation of the soils. So it's nothing new, it's been going on for a few centuries. Bad practices, not putting the organic matter back. And if we break that link, if we break that, what is the ancient rule of return, that ancient civilizations have just done, and that's how they survived... And had fertile soils. And
0: what a fantastic present. That really sowed a seed, didn't it? Yeah. In terms of your awareness and your life. Yeah, so, what so doing.
3: in that book was, was an article by May Bruce. And May Bruce was one of the founder members of the Soil Association along with Lady Eve Balfour. There's this connectivity between the, the health of the soil, the health of the plants that grow in that soil, and then the health of the people or the animals that eat those plants. We're inextricably linked by that chain. And May Bruce said, give back life to the soil and abolish disease in plants, animal and man. And that's as true today as, as when it was said back in the 1940s.
0: A book that changed the way I respond to the earth is Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, A wonderful conversation between Western botany and indigenous understanding about how much humans can learn from paying attention to plants. Jory
5: Graham. One of the things that we've replaced this magical capacity to feel at home in a complex universe in which we are not only not alone, but not fundamental. We've replaced it with a technology which has been building since the agricultural revolution, which is not that long ago, and it certainly has accelerated dramatically in our moment at present, a technology which is entirely created to separate us from the fundamental capacity to imagine that we are part of life and are not life itself. And that I think is the most important characteristic that the imagination bestows upon people who inhabit it. You don't have to be an artist to use the imagination. You know what we have done by privileging information over wisdom, by privileging the acquisition of data over the acquisition of intimations and wisdom through direct participation with the earth, is part of what has led to our ability to blindly destroy the
4: very place and only home that we have. The new convention on biodiversity is like, how do we live in harmony with the earth? And even when I look at that, I'm thinking, okay, that that's ideal. But one of its underlying assumptions that I find problematic is still a binary between humans and, and nature, right?
0: Deborah McGregor
4: again. First of all, you got to try to imagine that we're actually literally part of the same thing, that it's actually not, or the big push on nature-based solutions, which Indigenous peoples probably have been saying, but not calling it nature-based solutions for a long time. But even that still, there's this underlying assumption of this binary. I think what Indigenous peoples can do is just show that there's a different way to be in the world, because right now there's a real lack of imagination or there's fear about what that looks like. There's a lot of fear. Like If I don't have this, what do I have then? It's like, well, there's a whole bunch of people in the world who don't have that. And they're still here and still trying to provide the leadership and inspiration. Maybe that's a better word. Inspiration for imagination to see that there's a different way of being in the world. There's different values that come into play. You in know, their idea of change is we all need to have electric cars. I thought, isn't the point that we're supposed to think we don't need one? Like Maybe we're going to do other things and maybe we just don't travel all over the world like we did. Like... That's kind of like their idea of a solution, right? Which is just kind of a tweaking to me of the status quo rather than, you know, really setting it off on a different course. There's other, other knowledge, other laws, other governance systems that can help people at least imagine. Deep ecology
0: recognizes all life as a sacred circle where everything matters, depending on everything else. Nothing is separate. What if we opened our imaginations to look and listen more closely? Poetry makes us stop. It slows us down and helps us listen, see, and process our experience. So let's end with one of Jory Graham's poems,
5: called simply Poem. The reason the poem's untitled It's not even called untitled. It's just a name for what it is. It happens to be a poem because there is no hierarchy. (laughs) When the earth has the last word, you're back in the non-hierarchical. The earth said, remember me. The earth said, don't let go. Said it one day when I was accidentally listening. I heard it. I felt it like temperature. All said in a whisper. Build tomorrow. Make right fall. you are not free. Other scenes are not taking place. Time is not filled. Time is not late. There is a thing the emptiness needs as you need emptiness. It shrinks from light again and again, although all things are are present. A fact, a day, a bird that warps the arithmetic of perfection with its arc, passing again and again in the evening air, in the prevailing wind, making no mistake. Your indifference is your principal beauty, the mind says all the time. I hear it, I hear it everywhere. The earth said, remember me. I am the earth, it said. Remember me.
0: Jory Graham, ending our earth episode. In Our Element was presented by me, Linda France. It is a Sonderbug production with New Writing North, supported by the Audio Content Fund and Arts Council England in association with Newcastle University. Thank you for listening. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words. From East Leeds FM
6: No, no,
2: leta No, no, leta Petamadi No, no, leta
1: So, you're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM, and uh, we're really pleased today to be talking to Emma Wright of the Emma Press. So, hello Emma.
6: Hi Peter, and, thank
1: uh, you for having me. Oh, it's great, it's great to have you uh, on the programme, and you're, well, where are you speaking from?
6: <laughs> I am speaking from Riga in Latvia. Uh, I've recently moved from Birmingham
1: fantastic so what's it like over there
6: oh it's very snowy very cold um but also yeah very lovely as well i've I've moved for love so i'm happy to be here
1: well congratulations and uh, i hope it's a very happy move um uh well first of all emma just tell us if you would a little about the emma press and what what it is you do
6: so it's a small independent publishing house which I started myself in 2012. Uh, and I previously worked for a couple of years at a big uh, trade publishing house in London called Orion and I'd formed ideas about what my press would be like and how I'd do things and I really wanted an outlet for my creativity as well because I was working on ebook admin. So I started it I had a lot of uh, really strong views, kind of creative views, and um, I guess looking back, kind of political views as well about what, what a business could be, what publishing could be, and I started by publishing poetry, but there was always the plan to branch out and have a kind of full, fully rounded publisher, not that just specialist publishers aren't rounded, but I, I wanted to be able to publish poetry and prose and children's books and translations. So over the years, I've been adding those in, but I guess at the moment, the Emma Press is probably still mostly known for poetry.
1: So yes, it must have been quite a big step to 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 move out of well, kind of an institution to, to founding your own press. How did, when did you do that, and what and what was the what was the, the prompt to, or the, the, the turning point that led you to do that?
6: Of things i think one really significant one was um I, I was working on the archives so this is at orion i was having to hunt down the files for various books that were being turned into ebooks and i got a kind of crash course in the history of publishing and realized how many how many imprints as they're known in the trade so how many um you know the, the things that are on the on the front of the book the publishing bits but that you know like within penguin there are multiple imprints so how many of these imprints started off as publishing houses in their own rights and then they were bought up and absorbed and i guess i hadn't really thought about businesses in that way before i just thought of them as just uh, they're just businesses and some i guess someone set them up and it's all to do with money and business They i hadn't thought about it in terms of uh, someone having decided to set it up, and it was it was someone's dream once, presumably, um, and also just lots of men's names there as well. And I thought, oh, the, this, the, I, I don't really see anything that's like what I would do, and um, I guess no women's names from what I, what I could see. So that kind of informed why I did the Emma Press, uh, but it was really daunting. Um, I think I just I really couldn't see a way of progressing in the job I had. So looking back, it was quite a rash move, and I, I think I didn't really think about um, the loss of stability, and I, as the years went on, I really thought about that a lot, and all kind of, you know, paid holidays and pensions and all of that, which I've now gotten for myself, but um, it took, it was taken 10 years to be able to get to that point, so, um, but I'm, I'm still really glad I did it, and now I see people my age, so I'm 35, I see people I was at university with, kind of quitting the rat race and trying to do something themselves and I, I just got to that point a bit earlier I think.
1: So Emma, yeah, what was the first thing published with the Emma press
6: It was a book of poems by my friend Rachel Pearcy, and I read her poems I really loved them but at the time I was trying to uh, as a way to use my creativity I also wanted to be a book illustrator which I've sort I've, I've kind of given up on now I still illustrate things and I like like to make things look nice but I'm not very good at working to briefs and um, yeah so I just illustrate for the Emma Press where I'm I'm the one giving myself the commissions as um, I'm telling myself what, what, I, what needs to be illustrated. Uh, so it's the Flower on the Plough collection of I think 12 love poems and then my illustrations and I took I know, about six months working on it so I was taking my time trying to understand all the processes, the typesetting, or the editing, the the cover design and then the print production, the ebook production, the sales, the launch party, all of those things which I knew through working in the bigger publisher, I knew there were things I had to do. And I guess each each bit I I thought, oh this will be the thing that I, I can't stand and this is the reason why I should focus on illustrating. But actually working on the business was really exciting to me and really interesting. So that, that's why it grew, because just the challenge of trying to produce and sell a book turned out to be something that I really liked.
1: Well, it, it's certainly grown from that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, you, know, you, you publish an enormous range of, of titles and uh, obviously a lot of poetry. Um, and, and, and exclusively women?
6: No, I think sometimes people have said that to me. Like they feel like maybe, maybe the Emma Press is a, a women's press. Of um, the single author books, um, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a strong weighting for for any gender really. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I guess maybe just the fact that I'm a woman and I'm running it. I think maybe it just gives the impression. But I would say just individually. Um, of the of the pamphlets or across the anthologies but yeah, so I'd say no <laughs> but I don't mind if that's the perception because that's fine as well
1: And is there a kind of um, yeah, an aesthetic that you feel is particular to the Emma Press?
6: Yes, and but it's interesting because it develops because I mean, that's, that was a reason for calling it the Emma Press it was also to try and make it really clear that there's a person behind it or now there are people behind the scenes working on it and as so I think it's really unhelpful to have this image of publishers as the, the arbiters of what's good, what's good literature because really it, it's all kind of deeply subjective because it's just people deciding what's good and obviously you can apply different um, principles to it and think ah oh, this is, this will sell well or this will do well in this market but ultimately you're still a person with taste. Um, So, yes, so obviously, so yeah, the things that I'm looking for change as I, as I myself change. So I'd say, yes, there is overall an aesthetic where I like things that are maybe quite lush. So whether words are quite visual and will conjure up visual images. I I like that. Um, I I like a certain playfulness with language. So whether that's within quite formal poems or within something that's very, very free or something in between. So something someone who's doing something interesting that that that's what makes me go back to that when I'm looking through manuscripts um and I guess some humor as well so I, I do like things which well I've published lots of things which are quite dark and can be quite sad as well um but at the same time I'm still I'm still looking for some sort of quirk or or twist in the way they're looking at things and I think that's probably remained the same the whole way through which is as you say thank you very much <laughs> that there is some sort of Emma um, Press aesthetic uh, but but then there are also periods where you know I've been more drawn to extremely intricate wordplay and I'd say I'm not so into that right now and as, as I'm reading the submissions I think I'm looking for some sort of emotional beat um like a, a heartbeat or uh yes something that gets me and I think that's the thing I'm prioritising right now and it's just um, maybe I've published plenty of books which would fit into the extremely playful um, linguistic side of things or maybe it's just the, the mood I'm in right now it's winter and <laughs> I'm looking for human connections so um, but yeah so there's I, I feel like I'd like to share more of that so we do calls for submissions quite often at the moment we're doing them quarterly. And we have the descriptions on the websites of various things we're looking for, and, and people can always look at what has been published already. But I feel like we could start sharing um, just the moods we're in when we're reading things. So, but I'm not sure whether that would panic people or not. Mm-hmm. I don't know, <laughs> what do you think?
2: I'm not
1: sure. I think probably, uh, yeah, a general invitation might be, uh, might be better for you. Otherwise, you know, if people think you're looking for a particular thing, end up with a less lively um submission yeah list.
6: that's true yeah we had a lot of um pandemic submissions which i, I think obviously that people want to write about the pandemic and the coronavirus and i've taken on some books already which um were sent to me last year so but then uh, you know i sometimes think strategically there's obviously a limit so i can't just just now publish twenty pandemic books in twenty twenty two, even if there were twenty really great books I came across because it would it would really skew the press and the list. Um but yeah, I guess ultimately you've just got to write about what you want to write about and then hopefully it will connect with the publisher you're sending them to. And do you
1: enjoy reading the submissions?
6: I do. I I, th- I always want to get to the point where I I really, well, I, I once get to the point where I'm happy reading them, so sometimes if I've left it to the last minutes or I've, uh, I've not spread it out and done and have read a few a day, then I kind of feel slightly overwhelmed by them and think, oh no, because each time there'll be between 150 to 250 wow. and the full manuscripts. So, so this time round actually since, because I, I've had employees, two part-time employees, uh, well, 2 I've had two since September and had one since, um, I think, March, so I'm starting to be able to share out the workload and actually now we're sharing the most recent call for submissions between the three of us, which means I have 80 to, to read and I've been trying to do five a day and that's, so, so that means I can read them and enjoy them and have a kind of a happy feeling and not to be too, well, I guess I have a slightly... Kind of pollyanna um outlook but like ideally i would approach the submissions and i would approach a lot of the work with a really um kind of joyous positive outlook which obviously isn't re- isn't possible a lot of the time or even um yeah even some of the time at points but um I'm, I'm so aware of what goes into each one and i read the covering letters and the proposal documents which we've been asking for now and from from my point of view obviously on some level I'm, I'm reading 80 so I can't I can't fall in love with all of them but on the other hand from their perspective it's it's someone who's worked on this kind of for weeks maybe for months or years on, on this on the body of work and they've put it together and they've sent it out and I, I'm really aware of the vulnerability of that because I don't send my work out I do, don't even write anything anymore since I started the press but I, I remember what it was like from that very brief period when I was trying to trying to send my writing out and it's terrifying. So I I do feel that each time and I want to approach, like the the most I can do for for most of the submissions is just to read them with respect and um, kind of a a feeling of openness. And yeah, so that's, yeah. So I do, (laughs) to answer your question, I do enjoy it um, unless I've um, planned my time badly, in which case it, it can feel a bit much.
1: Well, I'm sure if anybody's listening to this and it feels like submitting to the Emma Press that they'll be, yeah, be gratified and uh, sort of heartened to hear about your your open attitude to what people say. Um, Emma, you've chosen two pieces of music and the first one is by The Divine Comedy. Would you like to just, uh, yeah, tell us a bit why you've chosen? Them?
6: Yes, um, well, The Divine Comedy is my favourite band, so I would have to pick something by them. But I thought just to link it into my work, I would say this is the feeling. So it's called Have You Ever Been in Love? But the feeling the song evokes, I think, is the feeling I try to channel when I'm working. And again, it's not always possible, but there are some times when I think, Oh, I'm so lucky I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm making making books, I'm working with people, people are reading the books, um, and 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 this is the fe- I guess the feeling in the song, especially I think towards the end where his voice goes really high and this, you know the music's really swelling up. That's the feeling I hope that people get from reading the Emma Press books as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: So that was the Divine Comedy, chosen by Emma from the Emma Press. Um, and yeah, Emma, do you still buy their albums?
6: Ah, oh, I haven't bought the most recent two. Uh, but when I was ch- I was sorting through my CD collections to decide what to bring, because obviously okay, I'm sh- shipping stuff from the UK to Latvia, so I can't bring everything. And now's a re- that's a really good time to be um, just clearing stuff out. But I thought I can I can't. Yeah, I'll take them with me. I will. I will ship them across. I think I've got about ten albums, maybe, and various uh, like the best of, and um, yeah, a bootleg DVD I bought online. Yeah, so I've got to bring them with me. But I'm listening to the new ones just on Spotify now.
1: And you rate them? The new two new ones? <laughs> I'm just interested. Uh, this nothing to do with love the words. It's just because I'm interested. Because I'm not so. I think they might have gone off the boil a bit, Emma.
6: Yeah, no, no, I I think so too That's another reason why I didn't feel like I needed to buy Especially the most recent one It felt a little bit novelty like From the last one, I liked Norman and Norma That's on my, my running playlist And and Q Jumper But from the very recent one There haven't been any standout ones so far But I, I will give it a few more listens Because sometimes it takes a few listens to get into it
1: Absolutely Well, we'll move off to Divine Comedy And back to <laughs> the Emma Press So, you, you've got a big um, Grant the Elevate programme yes. in the Arts Council. That must have uh, made a real difference to you. Tell us what, how that's impacted upon the press.
6: Oh, it was a, it was a huge thing. It was kind of all my dreams come true because before then, so in in 2019, I was trying to grow, but when you are kind of, no, I know, I'd grown it because I needed to get to needs to get to the point where I I could have. Um, kind of, pay people to help me so I was I was working always working on growing it but the more I grew I was still in your knees so I was just I don't know it seemed I guess from the outside it seemed like the business was growing and flourishing and I guess it was it was just that the cost to me was enormous um and what the Elevate grants from Arts Council England meant was that I could actually maybe maybe I had the the grace to pause for a little bit and make do some strategic planning and to actually hire some people and get some training for myself and some mentoring and just set some systems in place which mean that i i, I can kind of see a bit further into the future now rather than thinking what how much more work can i bear to take on um so yeah so it I was applying in 2019 I found out at the end of 2019 and then, yeah, so it started in January 2020 and obviously then a few months later um, the world turned upside down so I, I was really fortunate just in terms of the timing because I would have been massively panicking at that point whereas I thought actually, yeah and the Arts Council was being really good about it and saying, okay, we understand that everyone's plans have changed and the things that you said you would do might not, might not happen they might not be possible or you might need to change them Um, And the reason it's called Elevate, it's meant to elevate these diverse-led arts organisations to the point of being able to apply for more regular funding, so it's kind of basically buying us all time. It was originally two years, now it's three years with an extension, so it's three years to get to the point where we're in shape to be able to apply to join the national portfolio. Um, and the deadline for that is April so just coming up um and I don't entirely feel ready for it but I've I do have to go for it um so yeah so I so I've basically had this time to uh, try and earn more money and try and become more resilient learn how to take on staff set up an avi- advisory board um learn more about doing financial planning and budgeting uh, so it was all the things which I really needed before but I I couldn't do because I didn't have the money and I I didn't have time apart from just constantly working on the books and trying to sell the books that allowed me to take a bit of a step back and I'm I'm still kind of in the middle of it really because the first year was twenty twenty and it it was even though I had the funding I couldn't it was it was so unclear what the world was going to be like. Thought, well what what does it mean? Can I if I take on staff, does that mean I don't know, if, if we if there isn't an extension year then is it really irresponsible to take on staff and also what am I asking them to do? Because who who knows like you know at the beginning it felt so so scary and I just didn't know what yeah what sort of business I should have in case things changed a lot um and actually things have settled down a bit and so yeah so at at the start of last year I was able to start recruiting and that was a whole learning curve as well but I think I'm in a good place now and yeah so now I have a a few more months to work on my business plan and my budget and yeah attempts to apply for even more funding
1: great and but you've I mean you've moved to Latvia is that going to be uh is that going to be okay in terms of I'm sure it will be but in terms of uh working with your team
6: yeah so yeah so I I've thought about that it was just well you know nothing's nothing is ideal in life but I just yeah I just fell in love just as I was applying so I was yeah, as i was applying for this grant and i knew it would change things i thought well i'm i'm applying for something that means i have to remain kind of based in the uk for this foreseeable future but meanwhile it seems like it was well it was going really well and it seemed like i would be moving to latvia sooner or later um but yeah so, so i guess i've had it on my mind the whole time and i have um well i, I had to so with my two employees one works has always worked remotely and that was something that I wouldn't it wouldn't have occurred to me to do before the pandemic but actually I thought for this, and she works on the web shop so kind of online sales so I thought actually she doesn't need to be based anywhere I can spread the net much wider so that's Pema and she is based in London works remotely uh, but then for the second person publishing assistants I needed someone who was based in Birmingham so they could go into the office and be working with the, the books of packages and sending out web shop orders so that's Georgia Um, And, yeah, I think ideally I would have two people based in Birmingham for just kind of extra security. So previously I was living in Birmingham, and so there were always two people who could do the post. Um, So I think at some point this year I've applied for yet more funding from another place. I've applied for some British Council funding, so I'll find out at the end of this month if I get it. And that will help cover another person if, if it comes through. So that's, I'm waiting to hear about that and then I'll, I'll figure it out. So it, yeah, so at the moment it's okay. I've, I've always thought this is just from working back in Orion, it's all about communication, everything, as long as you can communicate well. And that goes for remote working. So we've just started using a, a projects management app called Basecamp, which I'm really enjoying. Just in the last two days, suddenly I feel like I, I have a sense of um, what everyone's doing. And also I guess the challenge for me is Downloading all of the stuff from my brain onto various documents and sharing them with my staff because there's, there's well in a way that like communication is important but when it's all in my head I don't really need to communicate with anyone so but now I have to put it somewhere because I won't always be available and you know when people are off off sick and you know, it's just generally there needs to be some way of people finding stuff rather than just having to ask me so that's been a really interesting sort of psychological hurdle of thinking okay it's the, the information has got to be somewhere else other than in my head.
1: Um. Well, I'm, well, I'm well acquainted with Basecamp because we use Basecamp for oh, okay. uh, Chapel FM. Yeah, so, uh. Uh, yeah it's good, it, it, it's a good thing isn't it? Yeah, um, so Emmy I've d- just I've noticed that you're um, you're publishing more translated uh, titles so I mean yes. tell us a bit about your plans in regard to that.
6: It's something that I just, I'm just interested in. I think it's, especially for some genres, I think it's really important to have more voices from different countries. So so I started out publishing tr- translations because I was looking for children's books and translation because I thought it's, you know, I feel like I, I was raised in a fairly international household because my, my mother is a Vietnamese Chinese and my dad was a Mandarin teacher. So I, I, I feel really lucky to have always felt like I was part of the wider world and I'm aware that there are, yeah, there, there'll be some, some families, some children who, who don't have that and that, that can be a, that's a real shame. So I, I guess that was sort of my my attempt at activism of thinking I will try to, um, diversify what's being published in the UK which is a, a big aim but I thought I would, I would do my part at least and, and try to bring in um, some books and some authors and, and, and then I, just, it just happens to be a thing that I also really enjoyed that the challenge of editing translations um, and just it's just fun having more connections so working with international publishers and making friend making publishing friends is a really enjoyable thing so it's not necessarily something I have to do but it's I think I'm I'm good at editing translations and I enjoy the process so yes yeah, So now there are translations in the um in the short story pamphlets for adults and in the poetry pamphlets and I, I hope to do more uh, so there, there have been points where I've had more of an, an active strategy where I've been seeking out books at the moment I have a bit of a backlog so I'm not doing that much scouting, but um, Georgia, the one who just started, um, she's a translator from Italian, so I feel like there's a lot of interest in translation in the team now as well, so that area might start growing again.
1: I've just uh, been reading a fascinating book about translation by Ah. Anna Aslanian. Do you know her
6: No, what's it called? Okay.
1: I'm going to be interviewing her for Love the Words, actually, um, hopefully quite soon. It's called Dancing on Ropes, Translators in the Balance of History. It's a really interesting book. I thoroughly recommend it. It's published by Profile Books. Ah, uh, oh, yeah, thank you. It's It's um, all about the art of translation and, and translators through history. It's great.
6: Huh. Well, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a real art. And I have some kind of, I think the reason I can edit is that I I did classics at university so I I wasn't very good at it but I was having to try and translate things and just always trying to figure out the sweet spot between translating something literally and just going way too far and I think ideally especially for children's books you need it to be of course you want it to be accurate but it also just needs to read well so you, you can't be you can't um, reflect every single grammatical, linguistic detail in the work. And I think that's that's a really exciting challenge to me. And But I, and I also really respect people who do it. And I like working with people to, um, to get that balance.
1: So Emma, I mean, unfortunately, we've got to end quite soon. It's been fun, fascinating to speak to you. And uh, yeah, I do recommend the Emma Press. That, um, I think you're publishing Pamela Crow's uh, poetry book soon.
6: Yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's, I've, it's going to be in October now, I think, The Bell Tower. Um, it's so good. It's really funny, really, really dark. And, um, I was just emailing the illustrator yesterday, um, with the brief for, um, doing the, the front cover. So it's, 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 we're working on it now. And yeah, keep an eye out. Uh, October feels ages away, but it will come around in no time. I think. Her pamphlet will
1: make a splash. Oh, she's really looking forward to it. We I did an interview with her for Love the Words a little while ago. So, um, yeah, with, with Pamela. And she read some of the work I think was going to be uh, featured. So uh, looking forward to that very much. But, yeah, this is a, a bit of a, a, a difficult question for you. Any favourites of yours from the Everpress that are, that you could recommend now for people?
6: Well, I know that's really tricky like
1: between <laughs> your children but um yeah. you know, if there's anything coming up that you want to recommend particularly apart from pamela's book of course hmm.
6: well i would i would say the one that's coming up immediately so at the end of this month is a poetry pamphlet called overlap by valerie bence and if there was a subtitle it would be a grandmother in isolation um so well, there are poems about her grandmothers. So Valerie's, I think, seventy-five now. So about her grandmothers. So from a completely different time, and then she's reflecting on her own experience as a grandmother on her grandchildren, but also um, being separated from them during the pandemic. And it's just got some lovely details, real humanity, but and some again some really dark, really dark poems. Um, but just with such. Uh, Know, such love in them and so i'm really yeah i'm really excited for that to come out okay. so and
1: yeah valerie Bents. Bents, bence bence b-e-n-c-e
2: yeah cool. well, well
1: we'll look out for that well thanks very much emma and just uh, you chose um and uh, yeah people want to get in contact with the empress well how do they do
2: that
6: yeah, so we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I would say the Facebook messages don't come up very much, but if you want to DM on Instagram on, or Twitter, we'd see them. Um, also just visit the website, so com, And we, just before Christmas, we updated the About Us page. So you'll be able to see a little profile about me and penna and Georgia and all our email addresses so you can see those there as well and there's a newsletter that's the thing I would plug um, we have a really great newsletter which um Penna does two of them and I do one of them and so if you want to see kind of insights into what we're doing I send them a kind of chatty one that's a bit like a um almost like a kind of memoir of my my last couple of months and then Penna does a, a a writer's newsletter to inspire writers as well as a bulletin just to give people updates so again the links from the website but I'd really recommend that.
1: Well um, good luck uh, with your new life in Latvia how's your Latvian?
6: Oh terrible I have about five words I went to a bakery yesterday and they didn't speak English so I had to offend myself (laughs) that was the first time I haven't been able to just say English and then speak in English so yeah I have to I really have to learn
1: Well, good luck with that. And in the meantime, you've chosen one uh, track, an ABBA track, to finish off with. So um, tell us about that.
6: So, well, ABBA is another one of my favourite bands. And I love this song, partly because it does that classic ABBA thing of being um, quite miserable, but also really upbeat. And I guess it it reflects maybe the the tougher times of the Emma Press. It's called If It Wasn't For The Night's But there's a kind of a hope that if it wasn't for the nights, I think I could make it. And not that I feel super bleak at the moment, or even a lot these days, but um, I guess it's just that mixture of feeling kind of weighed down, but also still going, and, and also it's just a really great disco track.